this is the longest reading of this morning. Um, so, but it's also really exciting. It's God's plan for our future. Hear the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This next part is... Sorry, taking a break. This next part is great if you're interested in architecture or design. Listen and think, what is God planning for us? The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. That's about 1,400 miles. And as wide and high as it is long, he measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick, about 200 feet, by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophrase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. 
The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Another break. If you're willing at this point, close your eyes and imagine what it's going to be like to meet God in the city. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thanks be to God for his word of truth. Amen. Thanks, Christy. Um, if you could have, have your Bibles open to Revelation 21, as you know, we've been going through this Advent little little Advent series, and we will be doing, we'll be talking about what it means for to what it means for us to wait and expect to, for Jesus to come, not in his just first coming, but how it looks forward. It makes us look forward to his second coming. And um, because I will go through the details of Revelation 21, I'm sure it would be very helpful for you to have that open. But let's pray that God will speak to us from this passage. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for Jesus who came. We thank you that he came as a helpless babe, baby. But Lord, we, uh, we thank you that he will come back in power and in glory and help us to look forward to that coming as we listen and as we open up to this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Someone yesterday at Christianity Explored asked me, did Jesus really become a human being or did he just have an appearance of human being? The amazing news of Christmas is that Jesus actually God is God becomes a, a God becoming a human being, really taking on flesh. The omnipotent, powerful God who created the heaven and the earth becomes this helpless, dependent baby who cries. It's an amazing thing, and we'll talk about that on Friday, um, when on the Christmas service. That God became incarnate. How He came, uh, not not only just to give us an example, but to actually die for us that he might bring us into the new life and new world. So the story and the, and the birth, uh, story of the birth and the life of Jesus really is the beginning. It's the beginning story. In fact, it's like through Christ, Christ coming, it's like um, we come to know God as a couple comes to know each other in the time of engagement. They only get a little taste of what's to come. Think about that. When Jesus came, we got a glimpse of what God is like. But then he left. The work of the Holy Spirit, the power and the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit is with us. But his effects sort of, sort of comes and goes. We still also struggle with our sin mightily. The, the work isn't complete in us. We know that the fullness of the kingdom of God will come because Jesus first came, but the fullness of kingdom of God is not yet here. It's, as, it's because we are still engaged in this time of engagement. And that is why the last pages of the Bible we read through 
Genesis. We thought we read through the Christ coming, but the last pages in Genesis, uh, in Revelation 21 and 22, it's a story of a wedding. It's a story of consummation. When Jesus comes back, all that we anticipate will be consummated. And that's what baby Jesus made possible. Um, Look down to verse, uh, uh, look down to chapter 20, uh, 21, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Here, as you can see, John is describing a wedding. You have the venue, you have the bride, and you have the groom. The venue for this wedding is the new creation. We've often talked about it in this church, how if we imagine the heaven, the end, to be heaven among the clouds with harps and robes and singing all the time, that actually is not a biblical imagery of the end time. The end is not among the clouds. The end is here. We see here the earth, the new heaven and the new earth coming down here on earth. The, the difference is that the old will have passed away and the new, the, 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 the earth will be recreated. And this is what Christ confirmed when he came, that the physical world is not a bad thing. The physical world is what God intended. He came as a human being and as a physical being to redeem this physical world. But I think one of the reasons why we want to escape One of the things that we always, the the reasons why we look forward to heaven is because we don't like this world. We don't like this physical world because it is full of violence. It is full of wars and suffering and power struggles and chaos and pollution and death. We want to escape. People have been wanting to escape this world for so long. And we have to recognize that clearly the world, there is a lot of evil in the world. But... Don't forget, there's a lot of goodness here too. When we talk about wars, we talk about heroes and the sacrifice that, that people make. And this Christmas season, we remind ourselves that there is uh, real friendship and warmth and real love, genuine love. When we look at the world, there's great beauty and majesty there still as well. You only have to go to Sai Kung to find that out. You see, the world is both good and bad because God created the world to be good but then it became bad. It was ruined. This is a picture of Tintern Abbey, which I visited a while ago. If you have a, uh, this is in England, if you, if you have a chance to go there um, and walk around, you'll be impressed by its grandeur. Even the things of the things that are left standing after a thousand years. You walk around the colonnades and you can, you, the, what it does automatically is you imagine what it was like once. Even its ruinousness, even its fallenness reminds you of the greatness. It's once uh, a greatness, how awesome it once must have been. You see, the creation is like that. The world is like that. It is fallen. But imagine once it, once it, um, what it must have been. It's still awe-inspiring. God, when God first created it, he called it good, and God is not prone to exaggeration. It was glorious. The power and the majesty, the beauty of God is still all over the creation. And when Jesus comes back, he will not discard it completely. He will not just rescue us from it, but he will restore it to its perfection. He will restore it to its glorious image once it was. 
When this baby Jesus returns in glory, every single cell of our bodies will reflect the image of God and every stone in this creation will sing of the glory of God perfectly. None of the bad things that make this world hard, sometimes unbearable, will be there. This is what John means in verse 1 when he says that there will be no sea in the new creation. The sea symbolized for the Jews a place of chaos, a place of uh, uh, where sea monsters live, a place of disorder. He says there will be no more sea in the new creation because there is no more evil things, no more chaos in the new creation. I can't really imagine this uh, world fully, but I am excited and I hope you are too. Behold, I am making all things new, said Jesus in verse 5. That's that work that Christ came and started when he came as a baby. He will complete when Jesus comes back. And in that world, there will be no more pain. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's a very intimate thing to wipe tear from somebody's eyes. Well, when Jesus comes back, he will do that for you. God will wipe tears from your eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain since the old order has passed away. That is the vision. That is the work that Christ made possible. That is the world uh, Christ made possible because he entered it and he redeemed it. But not just the world, not just the venue. Because who goes to the wedding to see the venue? The wedding venue is certainly important, but you go to the wedding to see the bride and the groom. Well, I got married this past April, and I think this is true of my wedding, this was true of my wedding, and this is true of, uh, I think, all weddings. When it begins, you, you, know, you enter the church and you see the groom standing in the very, very front, and music starts playing. One by one, the bridesmaid uh, enter. Parents sometimes follow. But then uh, there's a change. There's a music changes, the mood changes, and the minister asks you to stand, and you all turn around and you see the bride. You see the bride coming in. And we see that moment here in this wedding scene as well in verse 2. Here, the bride is coming down from heaven, beautifully dressed for her husband. Except it is slightly weird because this bride is described as the city, New Jerusalem. But before we explain what this is or who this is, let me say a few words about the book of Revelations because it is a hard book and I think uh, we do need some explanation here. You know, the book of Revelation is an example of what's called apocalyptic literature. It's a, a literature about the end times written mostly in symbols and images. It's as if John, Apostle John, saw this vision of the end times and he, his words couldn't quite describe what he saw. So he starts telling people the images and, and these symbols that he's seen. He describes it in symbols. It's, it's because the words have reached their limits and he can't quite describe what it is. I don't mean that these things aren't true. It is absolutely true, but it's that we shouldn't understand these things so literally. We should take it figuratively. For example, in Revelation 19, there's a picture of Jesus with the sword, sharp swords coming out. It doesn't mean that Jesus' mouth is somehow, out of his mouth will come some swords. Uh, It's talking about sharpness and the power of Christ's words. In another place, Jesus is holding seven stars. 
It's not that he's literally holding seven stars. He's so, what it's saying is that he's sovereign. He's he has seven these churches, seven churches in control. He holds them in his hands. We should take them figuratively. And if we take the words about the bride here literally, it is slightly weird. The bride is this holy city coming out, a holy city of New Jerusalem coming down, and it's in this cubical form. There's a, a few pictures that I found on the internet. How can the Christ, bride of Christ be a city? How can the Christ be um, the bride of Christ be this weird, odd-shaped city? The bride of God has always been the people of God in the Bible, Old and the New Testament. It is the people of God. What the city symbolizes is the people. We are the bride of Christ. Take a look at the uh, in verse twelve. It says the high walls had 12 gates and we're told that the gates have the names of 12 tribes of Israel. You see what it's saying? The, 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 it's made up of people of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what it's saying. Um, the city's foundation, mentioned in verse 14, are the names of 12 apostles. Could you go to the next slide, please? Um, 12 apostles. You see... The, the, what it's saying is that the city is, is the church built on the foundations of the 12 apostles. That's what it's saying. The measurements here are also symbolic. Verse 16 says that the city is 12,000 stadia high, long, and wide. You already know that number 12 is a, a symbol of perfect number in the Bible. It's a complete number. Right? 12,000. That means something. It's a complete number there. But if you also multiply 12,000, right? 12, 12, 12 times 12, you get 144. And that number in the book of Revelation is also a significant number. Because remember, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, here we, we have John recording. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. You see, the number then, 144 million, represents the entire people of God. It's not saying that there is a limited number of people. Because actually, in another part of the Revelation, it says there were thousands and thousands of people who he cannot even count, right? He's saying that the complete number of people of God is there. They come as beautifully dressed bride of, of Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what he's trying to describe. The gates face all directions, north, south, east, and the west. Since the church is made up of people from all nations, from all directions, we see that the city is adorned with precious jewels. Verses 19 and 21. Once again, people have pictured the new Jerusalem as a city made up of gold and, 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 and uh, um, a lot of jewelry. I can't, I can't even pronounce um, topaz and all these precious material, but we shouldn't read it literally. The city... Um, take a look at verse 11. This is how John describes it here uh, in 21:11. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious metal, like jasper, clear as crystal, and etc. You see, it shone with the glory of God, and it says its brilliance was like that of this precious metal, precious jewel. What it's saying is that the people of God, we, will perfectly shine with the glory of Christ. We will be made blameless and perfect when Jesus comes back. It is, the city isn't the people where people live. It is us. It is us. 
And if you aren't convinced by it, once again, take a look at verses 9 and 10. There, the city is described once again as the bride of Christ. That's us. We will be made blameless and holy. We will shine God's glory because we will be glorified. The process of sanctification will have been completed and God will create us anew as we were meant to be. We'll be this perfect individuals, but also a perfect community together. Jesus, when he first came, uh, made giving of the Holy Spirit possible, giving of the new heart. But we still struggle with sin. I fight my sins constantly. And the most frustrating thing about this fight is that we often lose this fight. And I'm sure I'm not alone because St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And this is a good news that's promised in this passage. For those of us who are struggling with sin, this is good news. For those of us who find ourselves too ugly, not acceptable, hopeless, this is good news. Christ will make us anew. We will be perfect. We will be pure and blameless, fit for God himself. We will be his perfect bride. And that's partly the hope of Christmas. This is what Jesus came to do, to bring us holiness, forgiveness of sins, and the new, new creation. What he has begun, he will finish. We will be made perfect like Christ. Well, the venue and the bride are prepared. But there's one more surprise here in this passage, that the groom, in some ways, is missing. Because the temple is missing. And that's something very important in the Bible. Take a look at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, John goes on to write. And that's a big deal because the temple symbolized God's presence with his people. That's how uh, the Jewish people, uh, that's what God promised in First Kings uh, 9, that he would be there. He would always be there forever. Having the temple for Jewish people meant having God's presence with them, having the groom with them. But here, the temple, John points out, is missing. It will not be there. Actually, we do sort of see this, don't we? Um, Because in the Gospel of John, the physical temple is replaced by Christ. When Jesus becomes a baby and entered this world, John 1, 14, John writes, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that made his dwelling among us really is the, the he tabernacled among us. He became a tent among us. He became God's presence among us. As Israel wandered in the desert, uh, God was with there in the tent that, was, that later became the temple. Jesus became that tent of God's presence and God's glory among God's people. Jesus became tabernacle among us. He became our, uh, God's presence with us. This is how we know that God is with us, because Jesus came. And that is why, even as Jewish people want to rebuild this temple, Christians aren't that concerned. Because we don't need a physical reminder anymore. Because Jesus, God, is with us. Not only that, he sent the Spirit so that we could be with God. But you know the story. I mean, after Jesus finishing um, his work, he went up to heaven. He disappeared. Once again, the work of the Holy Spirit, his effects sometimes are powerfully felt within us, and sometimes we feel his absence even more than his presence now. 
But you see what it's saying here. That, that when Jesus comes back, no temple is necessary because what the temple symbolized, what the temple pointed to, to the presence of God and the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, verse 22, are there with his people. God and the Lamb will be perfectly with us. That's why, John says, we won't need the temple. And the light, and it goes on in verse 23, the light represents God's presence there too. Just as Jesus said, I am the light of the world, Jesus will be perfectly with us. That's what it means um, by, uh, there in 23, that the city does not need the sun or the moon um, to shine because the lamb is its lamp. This doesn't mean that Jesus will somehow glow really brightly, that he'll be sort of glowing Jesus that gives a source of light to everybody. That would, not, that, that would be slightly weird. But it does mean that, that Christ's presence will be felt everywhere, that we will know that in everyone, in everything, that God is with us His, because everything in this world will shine God's glory. That's why we won't need another light because we'll never be blind to his guidance. We'll never be blind to his presence with us. We will always know his perfect presence with us when Jesus comes back. I think it's super interesting to me, I hope it's interesting to you, that it's symbolized actually in a different way too. We should have foreseen this because you know that, you notice once again in verse 16 that uh, the, the, the people of God, the city of God that comes down is in the shape of a perfect cube. Did you know that there's only one perfect cube, cubical structure in the Bible? It's the uh, Holy of Holies. It's the Bisbet, where God is supposed to be. It represents the presence of God. And what it's saying, what John is saying by saying that this city of God comes down. City of God, once again, is us. Yeah? City of God coming down in cubical shape means that we, the people of God, will be perfectly present with God. God, we and God will be so enmeshed together. Uh, We will be so united together. We will be saturated with the presence of God. That's what he means. The groom is really there with his people. That's what he's saying. We will never know his absence ever again. And I hope you are excited about this. Because, I, I mean, if you're not, I don't think you know what it means to know Jesus quite yet. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge was an English journalist who reached the height of success and fame in his profession. He became a Christian in his 60s. And this is a quote that I think I've used before and taken from a sermon that he's preached. He wrote, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify admission to the higher slopes of internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversion. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something that I said or I wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. He says he had fame, success, money, pleasure, influence, and fulfillment. But then he goes on to plea with his Listeners, yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, and them, and then, and them all together, they are nothing. 
less than nothing, a positive impediment a measured, measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Malcolm Muggeridge came to know Christ, and he says he is so satisfied with Christ that he doesn't need anything else. And you know, at, at the height of our experience of God, this is how we felt. Maybe when you became a Christian, maybe when you realized that God really loves you, 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 you realize that God is the only thing that you need, that you were made for God to be with Him, and really He is the only one that we need. But that moment fades away. The glow wears off with time. We sometimes wonder, that those who are doubtful, we doubt even maybe whether our experience was real or not. I'm sure Malcolm Muggeridge, once again, felt this way. That is the reality of living in this earth, on this earth, right now. Even 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and people saw the presence of God, but then Christ left. The Holy Spirit is with us, but his effects, once again, sort of, it's not perfect, it's imperfect. Our experience of God on earth comes and goes, but when Jesus comes back, it will be different. Every part of the universe will, uh, will shine Christ's glory, and we will always be with him. One of the best things that I love about getting married uh, is that is not having to say goodbye, right? And, and in your dating relationship, you date, um, you watch a nice movie together, you eat and you talk and you, I don't know, I, I used to play tennis with Mary and things like that. And, um, but then at the end of the night, at the end of the day, we go back to our homes. And I think in many ways, our experience of Christ is like that because we live in this time of engagement. It's not yet fully here. But when Christ comes back, it will be different. God will be with us, and we will never be far from him. Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a baby, and because this baby came, the world without sin, without suffering, without death, became possible. Because this baby came, we will be made holy, blameless, and pure. And because this baby came, and because he will return, we will, want, we will, we will know the fullness of God's presence with us, and we will never have to miss him. That's the hope of Advent. And that's hope of Christmas. This is what we look forward to. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that Christ came, that you did not leave us in our sinful world, in our sinful state of being, but you came as a helpless baby. But Lord, we thank you then that he grew up, that he died for us, that he rose again. And we thank you for the promise that he will come back. And in this Christmas time, as we await, as we remember his first coming, help us to eagerly anticipate his second coming. And help us to live in the light of that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.